You're listening to the Theology Mom podcast. And now, here's Theology Mom, Krista Bontrager. Good evening, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Thank you for joining me for tonight's conversation. And I'm looking forward to bringing this discussion to you about the recent events happening surrounding the Pope and trying to get a little bit more understanding uh, as Protestants into what is going on in Roman Catholicism right now. So this isn't going to be a teaching per se, but it will be an interesting conversation. And I want to invite you to join me on the chat um, and talk about these things together. I want to say thanks to Emily uh, for helping me out on the chat tonight. It's always great when my daughter is a, is a moderator. And hey, Allison. Hey, Brian. And Jeremy, glad to see you jumping on, too. Um, we're going to spend some time tonight talking about what's happening in the Roman Catholic Church. Some of you may have seen news reports last week of some of the Pope's statements about gay marriage. And it was all over the mainstream media that he's affirming gay marriage now. But I've learned in my life as a theologian, even though I am a Protestant, that things are usually a little bit more complicated when you are dealing with Roman Catholic theology. So it's good to take some time to kind of look under the hood a little bit and understand the inner workings of what happens in Roman Catholic theology and culture. So I do want to invite you to engage with me on the chat box on YouTube. You can ask any clarifying questions there. I'm going to have a very special guest tonight who's going to be helping us in this discussion. And so we will take periodic breaks uh, from time to time to read through the comments and respond to the ones that seem relevant. Hello, Jennifer. Hello, Alicia. Glad to have you here. Got two people from Chicago watching right now. That's great. I also want to let you know that I'm starting to work on my 2021 speaking calendar. So if you are interested in having me as a speaker, be sure to go visit my website and uh, fill out the little form there and get I'll get you connected um, and find out about your event and what your needs are. So my calendar is already starting to fill up for the first part of 2021, but um, you know, now's the time to think ahead for springtime women's conferences or other types of events, workshops, trainings, classes, whatever you're thinking about. Um, now's the time to, to start uh, having us communicate and plan so that I can support you. Now, if you're new to my channel, this channel is dedicated to proclaiming the historic Christian faith as it was taught and preserved by the ancient church and to explore how we can respond to what's happening in our culture through the lens of the historic Christian worldview. And if you've been watching this channel for more than 10 minutes, you know that this is not the channel where we do magic tricks with the Bible, where we try to make it fit uh, what our culture is telling us to do. We look to the Holy Scriptures first to shape our thoughts and our feelings and our opinions. And we use the history of the early church as sort of a, a guardrail or a boundary to help keep us from wandering from the true faith, the apostolic faith. So uh, that is what we are up to. So tonight, let's get into this. Um, there have been an abundance of news reports recently that the Pope is now affirming gay marriage. So there's been a lot of positioning in the uh, in the media to this effect. So I want to bring on my very special guest tonight. Uh, joining me is Anthony Costello. Welcome, Anthony be here it's great uh, to have yeah. you here and maybe you could tell us a little bit about your background and your expertise uh, on these questions right okay and uh i saw that we had a, a few uh people watching from chicago so that that's good because i'll give a shout out to my my hometown uh, i grew up on the south side of chicago i went to catholic grade school catholic high school uh, did my bachelor's degree at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Uh, in fact, my whole family went to Notre Dame. 
Uh, also spent uh, a few years overseas in Austria at the University of Innsbruck, which is where the um, great Catholic theologian Karl Rahner used to teach um, and actually has still a fairly strong Roman Catholic presence. Um, and I even studied for a few years at the Catholic, Inst uh, Catholic University of Eichstätt in Germany. Um, never finished my master's degree there, but I was there for four years. And as a good Catholic, I did drink a lot of good German beer. Um, but um, I sort of fell away from my Roman Catholic faith for several years, actually. Um, and in 2008, I... I uh, was back in Chicago. I was working for my family business and I decided sort of on a whim to uh, join the military. So I went into the army and, in 2008 and it was just about a year and a half later uh, in 2010 uh, where I walked into my first ever evangelical church and had a literal religious conversion to evangelical Christianity. I uh, heard the gospel or what seemed to be hearing the gospel for the first time, uh, saw a vision of Jesus, heard him speak to me, um, and uh, left that church service an entirely new person. Uh, started reading the scriptures uh, right after that uh, experience of the Lord. Uh, I was stationed at Fort Bragg, North Carolina at the time, so I was back and I had this um, small uh, soldier's Bible. Actually, it's this one right here. Same Bible that I started reading uh, had been given to me when I left for the military. And it was like the scriptures were opened up to me for the first, very first time in my life. So I knew the Holy Spirit was working. And um, of course, when one, when one sort of grows up Catholic, and again, this conversion experience for me was at 34. So I was, you know, an adult when this happened. But you come out of Roman Catholicism, and one of the first questions that a lot of Roman Catholics who become Protestants have to deal with is like, okay, what am I now? <laughs> you know, uh, am I a Lutheran? Am I a Presbyterian? I mean, because for us growing up, this was just like a smorgasbord of, you know, Protestant denominations, which was actually an argument for us that, you know, Protestantism somehow had to be false or something. Oh, it's not a good argument, actually. But I, I wound up finding a, an excellent Bible-centered, uh, Christ-centered, evangelical, non-denominational church just outside of Fort Bragg. Uh, really got mentored there by some excellent brothers in Christ, um, all military men, um, guys who had seen quite a bit, but they were just some of the most devoted and devout uh, Christian men I'd ever met and have since met. And uh, it was in my time in Afghanistan, actually, I was about, uh, I went to Afghanistan in 2012. And on my, right before my return flight, I was sitting in Bagram Airfield, which is this huge sprawling military base that has like 12 or 14 chapels on it, at least it did at that time. And, you know, and I ran across good old Lee Strobel's uh, Case for Christ in this little library in this uh, on, you know, where this, uh, this, uh, chapel was on Bagram airfield in Afghanistan. And I read it like in 24 hours and that got me hooked on apologetics. Cause I really didn't have that growing up, you know, for us, when I was growing up, it was just like, well, the Catholic church teaches it. So it's, it's true, you know, just roll with that. Um, so that got me into apologetics. When I came back, uh, uh my wife at that time and I, we decided that I would sort of finish up in the military because I was just getting more excited about my faith and about uh, reading the Bible, learning theology, learning apologetics as well. Uh, and that's around that time that I discovered Biola University. Uh, so when I finished up in the military in December of 2013, we decided to move out here so I could do the master's degree in Christian apologetics, which I finished in 2016. And then I uh, tacked on the MA in theology at Talbot, uh, which I completed in 2018. Very good. Um, so that's that's my personal story, uh, my growing up Catholic and now being an evangelical <laughs> Christian for about the last 11 years now. That's great, because I think that you're kind of uniquely positioned to speak both languages for us and 
translate, you know, what's happening right now in this part of uh, Catholicism. Maybe we could get into some background here about the situation with the Pope. Uh, You know, what happened last week? What did the Pope actually say? And maybe we can talk a a bit about that. Right. And um, uh, of course, the bigger background of this is that, you know, it seems that Pope Francis, uh, former Bishop, Archbishop Bergoglio from Argentina, uh, has this tendency um, that has been very frustrating to a lot of uh, traditional Catholics of of saying things in public, uh, especially to the press or in these you know times when he's dealing, uh, not specifically in a church context, of saying things that can be sort of interpreted very broadly, um, uh, or that are just sort of confusing um, about the issues. Okay. Um, so this is sort of one in a, in a line of statements that Francis has made going back to 2014. I think he was, became Pope in 2013. Uh, that has confused a lot of Catholics and caused a lot of consternation for the more traditional Catholics. And in one sense caused sort of maybe premature celebration for more liberal or progressive Catholics. But basically what he said uh, this time, and this was on October 21st, so just a few days ago, and it was in the context of being interviewed about uh, a documentary that's being made about his, his life and his papacy, which, by the way, is the second documentary about Francis. There was another one made back in 2016 that I went and saw. And it, it's interesting to me, it sort of raises a yellow flag that this pope has so many movies being made about him, but maybe we can get to that uh, a little bit later. But what he said um, was not technically about gay marriage. It was about civil unions. And this was the quote. He says, I quote, homosexual people have the right to be in a family. They are children of God. You can't kick someone out of a family nor make their life miserable for this. What we have to have is a civil union law. That way, they are legally covered, end quote. Now, of course, that would have been uh, said in, uh, I believe it was said in Italian. So there's been a little controversy over whether or not uh, what he said actually was, uh, you know, legitimizing the idea of uh, homosexual men or homosexual women uh, being in an actual civil union. But I, I think it's, it's, it's not, it's pretty clear uh, because he's made statements like this also when he was in Ar- Argentina about wanting to make some kind of accommodation for civil unions. So we should probably clarify what a civil union is versus a church marriage, because this is a little bit of uh, right. this may be like a crude way of saying this, but this almost seems like a little bit of a, a loophole. Yeah, and I think it was, and I think it was from from I, I've read about ten articles now just over the last two days because I what I didn't know much about was what he had said ten years ago when he was still Archbishop in uh, Argentina. So it seems to me that um, what Francis is is doing is he is separating out two different things. One is some kind of secular accommodation for men or women who are same-sex attracted so that they can have legal covering, call it it civil union. Which for us might seem like, man, like we're already beyond this, right? I mean, almost every country has same-sex marriage already. Um, But again, this is the Pope um, saying that some kind of accommodation for same-sex attracted people has to be made in the culture. That's one thing. But he is distancing that from uh, marriage. He's not saying, uh, I don't think, and most, I, I don't think you can ascribe this to him. He's not saying that civil unions are marriage. Okay. So I think he's keeping the two concepts separate, which sort of protects, uh, the institution of marriage from any implication that, 
uh, what 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 Catholics call marriage or what we would call marriage could include same sex people. Um, but that even if he's doing that, though, that's not necessarily without its problems. OK, uh, but I think uh, and, and he was trying to I think the way it played out when he was in Argentina was because he's made some very strong statements on traditional marriage in his time. And you can just look him up. Um, also in his time in as archbishop in Argentina, he made very strong statements on traditional marriage. But it, it seems like once he saw that maybe, you know, the battle in the culture couldn't be won, that's when he started to shift his opinion and say, well, okay, maybe we need something like civil unions. That maybe he sort of capitulated a little bit there and tried to come up with this compromising position. So I think that there's there's a lot of things to unpack here. Like one thing is that there is a bit of a controversy about the even the translation of whether or not it was even translated correctly that he was talking about civil unions. And I've I've read some things where people have said, no, that is really what he said. And that's been confirmed. And I've seen some things that are like, well, maybe it should have better been translated as, you know, cohabitation Living together. Yeah. Together. Yeah. So there is there. There is a yeah. bit of a, a question about the proper translation, but it seems like most people who have looked into this are affirming that this is the same position that he's held for quite a long time, dating back to when he was an archbishop. It, it, do I have that yeah. correct? Yeah, I, I think that anybody who's trying to argument argue um, that this was a mistranslation that's going to be really, that's going to be like a, a very overstated. That's really stretching out your apologetic, right? I mean, the evidence, all of the evidence suggests that, because uh, look, even if, even if you could translate that as just living together in the same household, well, okay, what, what do you think people are doing, right? If they're living together in the same household. And if you have two gay men living other, in the same household, I mean, they're probably okay. not going right. to be celibate. They're, they're not. Yeah. Okay. So, <laughs> uh, but then again, you have the past sort of 10 years, you have statements of him saying that there needs to be some kind of civil union accommodation. He said this in the past. Yeah. Uh, and he has said other kinds of things about how to address pastorally uh, homosexuality uh, that would also lead us to believe that he really thinks that there needs to be something like civil unions. So, I mean, I mean, now, now it is one of the controversies about Francis is he does sort of say these things and then he steps back and people press him on, you know, from a Catholic point of view, Holy Father, what do you mean by this? And, and he just sort of like leaves it there hanging in the wind. And, and, and that's, uh, you know, there was just a small demonstration from some Austrian and German Catholics who went down to Rome. And that's, that's exactly what they did a little, prayer service and not a protest, but they, they just unfurled a banner and it just simply said, Holy Father, please, can you give us clarity on homosexual uh, uh, civil unions or something like that? And that's all the question, that's all the banner said. Like, we just want clarity. So a lot of Catholics do feel like he says these things and then he sort of just backs off. Now that's something that might need discernment. Why does he do that? Yeah. Is he... You know, a lot of one way to interpret that is this is a stepping stone. Well, that's the thing is that right? I think the question is, is, you know. All right, let's let's have a conversation between what you said earlier about pastorally, he says this, but then what's happening with church doctrine or dogma, because those are not the same right. things. And exactly. the, there's a way of thinking about this from what I understand that it's like, well, maybe he's stating a personal opinion or he's he's giving pastoral advice as a priest. And we know from previous statements all the way back to before he was a pope that he has, you know, he's wrestling with how to deal with this issue on a pastoral level. Right. And, and this could be any, this is a question that could be applied to any uh, evangelical pastor, right? 
I mean, there's always this line of how do we meet people where they're at pastorally, right, without sort of accommodating for their breaking of God's moral law, which is fixed and universal. And, and that, that's always a fine line uh, to balance. We're struggling with that in our own churches. Uh, and as you rightly put up, uh, point out, uh, any pope is also a priest, right? I mean, if you're in the magisterium of the church at whatever level, you have to have uh, taken holy orders. So, uh, so any pope is still, he's still a priest, he's still a bishop, he's still all these other things that he was before getting elected pope. And, uh, and my friend, uh, I'll plug a book, my friend, a uh, good friend of mine, Ed uh, Echevarria, who teaches uh, at Sacred Heart Major Seminary, has written a book called, uh, 2016 book, uh, Pope Francis and the Legacy of Vatican II. And Vatican II has been interpreted by a lot of uh, post-council uh, Catholics as really a pastoral council. You know, and it wasn't like new, you know, huge progression in doctrine. It was more about how does the Catholic Church meet the modern world. Now, at the, in, the, in the days of Catholic uh, Vatican II, 1962 to 65, nobody was talking about things like gay marriage or transgenderism. That wasn't even on the radar, obviously but just how to pastorally meet um, the modern world, what with its relativism and everything. And when you, what's interesting about Francis, when you see his more formal sort of churchy pronouncements and his encyclicals and stuff that are specifically in the context of a church doc, a document, they're, 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 they hold the line uh, on doctrine for the most part. There's, there's nothing too wishy-washy about them. They affirm uh, the dogmatic teachings of the church, of which, by the way, uh, traditional marriage between a man and woman is a dogmatic teaching. It's a level one teaching. It's it's uh, infallible teaching. Based on, it's it's not defined, and and maybe I need to go through what the the four or five different levels of Catholic teaching. But levels one and two are both considered infallible teachings based on the the ordinary and universal uh, teaching of the magisterium. Uh, level one is all of the doctrine called the doctrines of the faith. These would be all the things in the creeds that we affirm as well. You know, a Christology, you know, the resurrection of Jesus, you know, the, the triunity of God. Level two doctrines of the church uh, are all the Catholic distinctives that have been declared infallible either through council or through something like an ex-cathedra statement, of which there are only two in history. But those would be like the Marian dogmas, um, you know, the doctrine of purgatory. Those are dogmatic statements that are particular to the Roman Catholic Church. They're infallible, okay? Marriage is an infallible, is an, uh, marriage between one man and one woman is an infallible dogma. It's an infallible teaching of the ordinary magisterium. So to change that, would minimally take something like the calling of an ecumenical council. You would really have to almost be dismantling things at a, a pretty, pretty core level if, if that's oh, yeah. what he was trying to do. Yeah. There'd have to be a, a council minimally at the level of something like Trent or Vatican one or two that would probably play out over several years. There'd be heated debate. And what would need to be come out of that is something like an ex cathedra statement, an ex cathedra statement, this goes to papal infallibility. Well, yeah, let's was, let's talk yeah. about that because that is another kind of connected thing here. I think many Protestants have an impression that, well, anything the Pope says falls under the, the umbrella of papal infallibility. We just hear this term as Protestants. We don't really know what it means. Right. And right. so, you know, is that what's going on here? What does that term even mean? And how does that connect to his statements? Or is that just... A pure opinion. Yeah, no, and and this is this is important because this is where the most confusion comes. I, I teach at a small uh, uh, a church in Norwalk, and the the congregation is primarily Mexican American, uh, so they all grew up Roman Catholic. Uh, but not everybody, you know, understands. Well, we don't even understand sometimes our own evangelical uh, distinctives very well. But you know. The, 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 the murmur at church on Sunday was that the Pope declared same-sex marriage valid, you know, and all these former, you know, were upset about this. 
No. Um, so papal infallibility was a a dogma that was pronounced. Um, it was pr- pronounced a dogma at uh, through uh, uh, through the first at the first Vatican Council, which was 1869, 1870, uh, presided over by Pope Pius IX. In the wake of of really in the Enlightenment and what the Enlightenment had done to the European continent uh, in the late seventeenth and or, um, late seventeenth through the you know mid nineteenth century. Um, so uh, papal infallibility, though only applies to when the Pope is speaking on a matter of, that is clearly of faith and doctrine. So a matter of revelation knowledge, what we'd say scripture for the Catholic would be scripture and tradition. And when he's speaking from the seat of St. Peter, not just as a priest or as like a, a, a personal opinion. Okay. So there's, uh, that, so papal infallibility is a very restricted kind of pronouncement. Uh, and there's only been two, maybe even one, two times that the Pope has spoke, quote unquote, ex cathedra on a, dog, a dogmatic issue. So when we hear that phrase ex cathedra, that's a, a signal to us that we're talking about this issue of papal infallibility. Yes. Okay. Yes. And that's the only thing that could really override prior, potentially override prior dogma. And and maybe we need to make the distinction between doctrine and dogma. Doctrines can come and go. Doctrines can be authoritative for a while, but then maybe upon further theological development or whatever, potentially uh, could be shown to be false or unbiblical or whatever. But when we talk about dogma, even if we talk about dogmatic theology in the Protestant world, those are the essentials. Those are the things that we say they're authoritative and binding upon the believer. They, they cannot be changed. If you, if you change a dogma, you're moving outside of the realm of what it means to be Christian. You're okay. losing something fundamental to the revelation of, uh, of Jesus Christ and, and, you know, and the scriptures and all things... Um, that relate to that. So uh, an ex cathedra statement is only is, is going to be a dogmatic statement, but to even get to an ex cathedra statement, again, you're going to need something like a council. Um, so we're not even close to that when we have Francis giving sort of like a personal opinion. Well, not a personal opinion. He's still the Pope. Let's say, let's, let's call him sort of the the most important priest of the Catholic Church. Okay. I'm going to put it that way. Okay. Saying, not in an official sense, but still saying, I think there needs to be something like civil unions. So, so we- it's not changing dogma in any way. It's not even coming close to it, but it does. it's not without impact either. Okay. Let's go out to some sense. comments here. We've got some comments coming in on YouTube. Uh, we got a lot of Spanish speaking people. <laughs> on YouTube, uh, wa- wanting to pobre. Uh, pardon my, my Espanol is muy pobre. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there, they, there several Spanish speaking friends here are, uh, my friend, Cynthia Hampton, who's also a Biola grad. So she thinks it's being misinterpreted to make people think it's a legal kind of civil union. Um, literally translated Alicia says, what we have to make is a law of civil coexistence. They have a right to be covered legally. Um, so, yeah, and one one response to that that I've seen uh, tr- Catholics making, and, and maybe even evangelical Christians would make a similar thing, you know, is well that can be done. I mean, legal contracts can be made between any two people who love each other. It could be brothers, sisters, fathers and sons, mothers and daughters two same-sex uh, people in a couple. I mean, what one thing that to point out about the civil union issue is that the Catholic Church in 2003, under the guidance of Pope John Paul II, and written by Cardinal Ratzinger, Joseph Ratzinger, who uh, was the head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith, which sort of is the group that safeguards doctrine in the Catholic Church, and Ratzinger went on to become Benedict XVI. In this 2003 document, civil unions are explicitly addressed, and I, I can let me quote this for you. 
So that we, what we do see is Francis changing a teaching. So a teaching has been changed here. And that's, that's maybe the relevant issue because there was a prior teaching. Again, we're not talking about dogma here, but there was a prior teaching by the Catholic Church written by Cardinal Ratzinger later to become Benedict XVI. And I'm going to quote it here because I think it's relevant. And this is uh, in, from 2003. It says, quote, the church teaches that respect for homosexual persons cannot lead in any way to approval of homosexual behavior or to legal recognition of homosexual unions. The common good requires that laws recognize, promote, and protect marriage as the basis of the family, the primary unit of society. Legal recognition of homosexual unions are placing them on the same level as marriage would mean not only the approval of deviant behavior with the consequence of making it a model in present day society, but would also obscure basic values which belong to the common inheritance of humanity. And, and let me emphasize this very last sentence. The church cannot fail to defend these values for the good of men and women and for the good of society itself. So that is that statement in 2003 said the church, the Catholic church, does not validate same-sex civil unions. So when Francis says now we need to create same-sex civil unions, that is, a, that is not a development of that. It is a contradiction of that prior teaching. Yeah, well, that's my question is, is that if that was the prior teaching, then what is he doing in this most recent quote? I mean, if he's just talking about kind of coexistence, why does that need to be stated? <laughs> you know, well, it, it's it, it's a little curious because, I mean, do you think that, and maybe we're wading into the realm of opinion now, but do, do you think that Francis has an agenda to bring or shift uh, into the, the church, into a more progressive stream of things. I mean, I know that the Pope, uh, for example, appoints certain key people in, that have influence over doctrine. Um, do you think he could be, the, he could be hinting in statements like this of what his, you know, where he's trying to take the church? Or is that, so, that that's just pure speculation, but I'm just wondering. Well, it, it's speculative, but there's, there's some evidence. This is where we get into the realm of, we do have to speculate a little bit. Um, I w let me say one thing before I answer that, because that's what I was looking up and researching the last few days and talking to my Catholic friends and family about. Because this is where there, there have been just very interesting events that have occurred in the last, just in the last three years maybe even two years. But, but let me, let me uh, highlight what I think is going on or what we can say about Francis's shift in, in teaching on civil unions. From a, you know, assuming, let's give him, giving the benefit of the doubt that he's just trying to be pastoral. He's a pastorally minded Pope, okay? It's one thing, I think we would all say, it's one thing for us to say, look, we have to meet people where they're at, okay? Uh, we wouldn't expect non-believers, non-Catholics or non-evangelical Christians to live by God's moral law the way we're trying to do, right? We wouldn't expect them to live, be living the Christian life, so to say. However, in the affirmation of a civil union, you're not just saying we don't expect you guys to live this way. What it seems to be saying is that the law, the moral law doesn't actually apply to you because you can go ahead and have a sort of valid civil union. I mean, unless you're assuming people are having civil unions and just to put it bluntly, just aren't having sex. Like they're just chased within their marriage. Fine. There might be some people who actually do that. but. I mean, I think what, what if we're if we're just being realistic, if people are entering into a civil union, uh, they're going to be having sexual intercourse with each other in some kind of loving, you know, in right. some kind of way. All right. So um, that's where you're saying 
there's can be there's there's grades of moral improvement. That's what we would call it sanctification. But there's not grades with regards to the moral law. There's not gradation in the moral law. As, as, as actually the Constitution, uh, one of the constitutions that came out of Vatican II, De Verbum, on the word of, uh, uh, word of God, says that the Bible has a fixed and universal moral content. But if the Bible has a fixed and universal moral content, the universal part means it applies to everybody equally. Well, Romans chapter 1 uh, and 2 and 3. And also that it's permanent. It hasn't changed just because now we we have more sort of sociological openness to homosexuality. So I think that's where there is, there is a, it, it could look, one could interpret then Francis as sort of taking baby steps in a progressive direction, also with regards to eventually what the church's teaching might look like in the future. Now, again, what he would actually technically have to do in order to get that done, we're still light years away from that in one sense. But there has been some serious controversy uh, on this and a few other issues um, where uh, cardinals and bishops have really been challenging Francis to clarify what he means because they do think that if he's not trying to actually shift the hermeneutical, uh, you know, uh, uh, meter or whatever, that he, what he might be doing is trying to get um, some of the more conservative cardinals and bishops to, um, and this is speculative, some of the more conservative cardinals and bishops to reject him as a, le as a legitimate pope. And then if they did that, he could excommunicate them saying that they're in disobedience or they're not in fellowship with the papacy because what the teaching magisterium of the church is is all the bishops that are in communion with the pope so could the pope at least in principle but all he could also carry this out get sort of his competitors his theological and social competitors out of the church somehow. And that's where I see conservative Catholics, even some in my own family saying, they think that there's evidence that he's trying to pull some kind of move like this. Oh, that he's trying to get his, his political or his theological enemies to denounce him so that he can then do like a, an excommunication act. Now that is very speculative. This is like some of the, this is kind of like the type of evidence we get about all the things going on in our political world today with Trump or Biden, how much is real, how much is like, you know, just conspiracy theory, kookball stuff. It's very hard to, at the end of the day, know because you can't get into the person's mind or, or even his inner circle, right? We're, we're very, very far removed from like this inner circle of Pope Francis who may be influencing him in a certain direction or maybe just his own mind on where he thinks he needs to take the Catholic Church, right? That's helpful. Uh, let's go out to the back to the comments here. We got a few new ones coming in. Um, okay, let's see. Cynthia is saying now. I'm thinking he made these statements in this documentary while he was still a bishop in Argentina. From what I read, Cynthia and Anthony, and correct me if I'm wrong. The, the, this video, this documentary, was filmed in 2019. But these were a restatement of things he had said previously when he was an archbishop. Is, is yeah, that so your understanding too? This this um, one that we quoted at the at the top of the show was from October 21, 2020. So just a few days ago, he said this. Well, I know that it yeah. that documentary aired a few days ago, but I think it was filmed in 2019 from what I right. read. The interview was about the documentary. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think okay. that's the way I understood it, according to one of the articles I read. And um, so it's but a it, recent statement. Okay, it was recent. Yeah. It's not from yeah. years and years ago. Um, and if you just go on the Catholic websites and the podcast, everybody's up in a, uh, is sort of in an uproar. Okay. So it, it's recent, yeah. Pam says, so could the Pope's statement be compared 
to if the president gave his opinion on something that wouldn't make it a law and it wouldn't mean that the rest of the country agreed with him. It's simply like an opinion. Well, uh, yes, of course, we don't look at the president in the, as an authority in the same way that Roman Catholics look at the Pope as an authority uh, because he is their ultimate pastoral authority. He's the vicar of Christ on earth, according to the Catholic Church. Um, so it might be a little more, but, 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 okay, there's, there's some analogy there. Okay. Like, I mean, in, a, in, in the sense that even if the president says something where maybe he's hinting that I'd like to do this, it would still take an act of Congress, uh, you know, and legislation to be actually constructed and then, you know, pass the, the, the Senate and House floor, you know, it'd have to, you know, the actual law would still have to be created. So if you're relating like the that whole process to maybe like the ecumenical and process that might end in an ex cathedra statement. Yeah. Okay. So Cynthia, um, just to answer your question, you're right. He made these yeah. statements before he was Pope. And again, recently, that's, that's kind yes. of the point of, of all of this. So, yeah. Um, so Anthony, I think as the, the church moves forward into the future, um, what do you think, um, will be important for traditional Catholics like your family members to, to think about, you know, and, and how do they kind of, how do you, how do you, how do you stand strong as a Catholic uh, when, well, when your most visible person leader is saying things that seem to kind of go against some, some of the teachings of the church? Yeah, and, I, and I, I think for all of us who have Catholic family and friends, we need to, we need to take this seriously for a couple of reasons. One, you know, it, it's a little easier for us in some sense in the evangelical world because if we start to see a pastor at a local church slipping, you know, away from sound doctrine, um, you know, there is a, a sense where we can always sort of go look for a new church, right? Now, we have our own difficulties, so uh, this is not to cast stones at uh, all of those, all the Catholics who are true followers of Christ. Um, so, but when you're a Roman Catholic and you have this uh, triple authority, if you want to say, scripture, magisterium, and tradition, and when the, the Pope, who is the, uh, the head of the magisterium, uh, start saying things that you disagree with, it can put you into some serious cognitive dissonance, right? Because which authority ultimately is the authority? Uh, now, we know there's been immoral popes in the past. Well, heck, we know there have been just outright pagan popes in the past, especially in the Middle Ages. Um, but this is sort of unprecedented in the modern era. My brother, uh, who does Catholic missionary work in Nigeria, very devout uh, man. You know, he's very worried about this because there's other things that Francis has done, not just on sexual ethics issues, but also with regards to religious pluralism. And I'll, I won't go into it, but you could look up the Amazon Synod, Synod that took place last year in Rome, um, where there was literally some guys from Austria that went down, they took out some, some statues of a pagan deity that had been put in a Catholic church in Rome and threw them into the Tiber River. It was almost like a, like a Reformation moment. So there is, a, there is a sense of where a lot of conservative or traditional Catholics feel like maybe the writing's on the wall, and they, they may have to choose at some point between the magisterium of the church and what I would say, Scripture. So let's let's have good conversations with our Catholic friends and family because should the time come that something like that has to happen, we have to be right there ready and waiting with open arms and the and the the Bible, the gospel to embrace Catholics who may feel that they no longer in good conscience can follow the teaching magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church. So that's that should encourage us to have good ecumenical dialogues with our Roman Catholic friends and family members. I love that. Um, that's a, that's yeah. a great place to kind of land this whole conversation yeah. is reminding our hearts of how to, you know, stand strong in our own faith, to stand for the apostolic faith 
and to be that kind of living invitation for right. others around us, including our Catholic friends and family, you know, as as they are wrestling through these issues and wanting to also be faithful to the teaching of the apostles and right. that that we can find kind of some common ground with with one another. Um, you know, there's honestly a lot of days where I feel like I have more in common with my faithful Catholic and Orthodox friends than I do with some of the progressive evangelicals that I might be um, that might be attending my church. Um, So we have to figure out what truly unites us um, across our traditions. And you know, this having done so much uh, theology and academic work in theology, I mean, there was this sense that, uh, you know, traditional uh, conservative or Orthodox evangelicals uh, like us, you know, we really appreciated Pope John Paul II mm-hmm. and uh, Benedict the Sixteenth, even though they dug their heels in on all of those distinctive Roman Catholic dogmas. Yeah. I mean, there was no; these were not men who were wishy-washy on the Marian doctrines or anything. But there was something deeper that seemed to connect us, and it was simply the embrace of uh, propositional truth. At the end of the day, that there are dogmas that we believe are grounded in revelation. Um, and uh, some, some, some we don't agree that, you know, you might say they're true, we say they're false, like the Marian dogmas, but at least we're, we're, we're on the same uh, uh, sort of field of examining and trying to understand the truth that God has revealed to man in space and time. And that, uh, which is a very different view than the progressive view, which is everything's historical. And it just, things develop constantly over time. And that revelation was just the product of human hand at a specific, or the Bible was just a product of human hand at a, a certain time and a certain place in history. Right. And that's where like, you know, we, we embraced, uh, you know, the last two popes, even though they were, they they doubled down on their distinctive Catholic Roman Catholic uh, uh, views, but we knew they stood for truth, right? And um, with Francis and maybe some of the people that surround him in his inner circle, it's a, it's at least it's a little it's a little hard to know yeah. where where they stand. So very good. We're gonna go out to the yeah. comments one last time and see what's happening. Okay. Yeah, there is a comment here about in the Protestant church, there shouldn't be anyone above church discipline or correction. Uh, How does that work in the Roman Catholic church? Like, let's say, you know, Francis really starts veering off. Like, is there some kind of checks and balances in place that they can take precautions against him introducing foreign foreign doctrines or or teachings yeah that's a that's a good question okay because i i've been wrestling with um what i perceive as a severe lack of authority in our evangelical churches right um and one would assume oh but you know the roman catholics have one thing down it's authority right they're so structured the hierarchy is clear i mean certainly francis the pope's checks and balances uh is uh the um you know, the, the bishops, right? The bishops and the cardinals uh, that make up the teaching magisterium of the church, they are always challenging him and testing his, what he says. And I'm sure he has uh, in the Roman Curia, which are the people right there located in the Vatican, um, you know, there are probably even a closer circle of uh, bishops and probably bishops to archbishops who have real theological training who are his checks and balances just as maybe our like a board of elders uh are going to be the checks and balances for the pope of uh, i'm sorry the pastor of a local congregation um but i'll say this uh when the doctrine of papal infallibility was made a dogma okay in 1870 by pius the ninth and pius the ninth was reported to say uh, in around that time to one of his cardinals, and I quote, I am the church, I am the tradition. 
with the doctrine of, or the dogma of papal infallibility, one mu- again, this is where our Roman Catholic friends and families could get into a lot of cognitive dissonance. This is something you are supposed to believe if you're Roman Catholic, that when the Pope makes pronouncements that we defined earlier as ex-cathedral ones, hey, that's dogma, baby. I mean, if you don't believe it, you're out. So there is this sense of where, in principle, nobody can check the Pope if it really came to that, uh, that he could make an ex-cathedra statement. Um, look, for the, for the traditional Roman Catholic, you have to believe that Mary's body was assumed into heaven upon her death, uh, the assumption of Mary, the Dormition. If you don't believe that, at least technically on the books, you're not Roman Catholic. You're outside the church because that's dogma. Now, that's all, that's all in principle. How that plays out in actual Catholic churches, priests, and bishops doing their due diligence of exacting or enforcing uh, church discipline, well, you know, we're supposed to have uh, church discipline based on, you know, Matthew 19 and Matthew 19, 20, and how often do we, you know, enforce church discipline? So how that actually plays out concretely in actual Catholic parishes, who knows these days, whether, whether it's more or less or nobody cares. It's hard to say. Very good. Well, thank you, Anthony, for taking the time to do this. I know you put a ton of research into all this. Thank you for adding value to our channel and these conversations. It's great to talk to you. I hope to have you on again sometime. We can talk about more Catholic things. So thank you. All right, Christy. God bless you. Take care, Anthony. Bye. And I want to say thank you tonight for watching the live stream. I hope you found this helpful and that you can uh, share the live stream. Be sure to give it a thumbs up and make sure that you're subscribed to the channel. And when you do those things, it all helps the analytics. Um, you know, conservative voices often get shadow banned and, and, and on social media. So all those little things that you do really help to spread the word and spread the education uh, for those in your circle. And I want to thank you for watching, and I hope you have a good evening. Take care and good night. Be sure to follow Theology Mom on Facebook and like, comment, and subscribe on YouTube. Don't forget to catch Krista next week for more theology fun on Theology Mom and all the things. Thanks for listening.